America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And despite our status as the greatest, most influential, most powerful, most prosperous nation in the world, uh, we are being influenced by another very powerful, prosperous, successful nation, Japan, in the direction of a new kind of relationship. It's highlighted in the New York Times this week. Uh, the headline in Dolls and Cartoons, devoted fans in Japan see marriage material. And this is a remarkable article. It's part of a whole uh, battering blitzkrieg, if you want, of ideas and commentary about people getting married to other people who aren't human. And uh, just to give you a sense of that, uh, during a lengthy and freewheeling conversation with Ted's Chris Anderson last week, Elon Musk, yes, the new master of the Twitterverse, expanded on his vision of what it would look like to share everyday life with automatons doing our bidding. A lot of people like that idea. And uh, there is a um, particular individual named Akahiko Kondo who was quoted in the New York Times about his marriage with, uh, with Miku. And accepting his feelings was hard at first, but life with Miku he argues, has advantages over being with a human partner. What exactly is Miko if not a human partner? Well, we can discuss all of this with Jay Richards, who is a particularly wonderful guest who I've always enjoyed speaking to on the Medved Show. And partially, uh, this gives us the opportunity to talk to this uh, distinguished uh, director of the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and the Family at William E. Simon, and he's also the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow in Religious Liberty at Heritage Foundation. He is also a senior fellow at Discovery Institute, where we know each other, and uh, has uh, been working with the Catholic University of America for many years. He is also the author of uh, an important book, uh, The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. Uh, Jay, sorry for the lengthy introduction, but you have a <laughs> lengthy resume. Well, it's great to talk to you, Michael. Well, thank you. Uh, this I don't know if you've seen this new article, this new yeah. report in the New York Times about literally thousands of people who call themselves fictosexuals. Were you familiar with that term? I, well, alas, I am, because, as you know, I've <laughs> written about this and in my book. The Human Advantage was a 2018. It was a praise of, you know, the opportunities for new kinds of work and technology. But I couldn't help but talk about the lies of these weird things, including sex bots, which are sort of the prurient manifestation of this. But in some ways, Japan and Asia are the sort of harbingers of these things. And I don't think it's for any obvious technological reasons. I think in many ways, it's a lack of human relationships um, that, you know, you have lots of single men and uh, humans are infinitely creative um, in both good and bad ways. And unfortunately, 
uh, this is manifesting itself. And when I first started talking about this, Michael, I think it was about 2016 or 17, people really thought I was crazy. Like, what are you talking about? This is not a real thing. And as you said, now this week, this piece in, in the New York Times and then the cover story of Harper's Magazine, uh, the May 2022 issue is about robots, virtual reality, and the future of sex is about the, roughly the same thing, unfortunately. Well, again, and virtual reality, fictosexuals are defined as people who get their only sexual romantic satisfaction from people who don't exist. And there are machines you can buy that can project these imaginary figures that you can fall in love with in a hologram, and you put it mm -hmm. on your table. And uh, I, I don't know, um, the the... The entire thing sounds. <laughs> yeah, Jeremy just commented, "Cheap date," uh, yeah. but, but uh, again, is this uh, this is a a coming business concern, isn't it? I mean, there are people yeah. who are making some big money on this. Absolutely, and I mean, people that for a long time, like I did for years, look at Drudge Report. He was always talking about uh, sex robots. He wasn't talking about virtual reality. I really think. Um, that's where the action is. I mean, anybody that follows robotics knows that, you know, we've been hearing about lifelike robots from just around the corner for years. And I don't know, you know, it's, it, they do some amazing things, but nobody's going to be fooled by these robots at the moment. Virtual reality is a different thing. We've made huge strides in virtual reality in the last few years. And that's where this uh, ficto uh, identity stuff is happening because you can you can create these projections in virtual reality and people do get they get emotionally attached to characters uh, either in novels or in online video games and so it actually doesn't surprise me that the reality is that where a lot of the action is is in virtual reality and that's what I think was important about the New York Times piece is they finally focused on that and not just the prurient sex robots. Right, and the, the idea is that this is not uh, anti-marriage. This is, quote, pro-marriage, because apparently in Japan, at least, there has been this movement that has already in, involved thousands of people uh, getting married to these non-existent fictional, fictional characters who have the advantage of never arguing. Uh, they will never betray you. They will have, always be there when you need, when you need them. Um, the uh, the lead character in this story says his parents are having a tough time accepting his marriage. Hmm. Well, you know, he's kind of stuck in the mud. The parents are probably Gen Xers and, you know, just haven't completely detached themselves from their mortal coils. But, I mean, the reality is this is all happening. This is, I honestly think it's it's connected to a lot of things. I mean, you read the literature now, people are talking about digit sexuality as just another sexual identity, just like pansexuality or asexuality and non-binary uh, digisexuality. This would just be people that are, are attracted to digital entities, either virtual reality or maybe robotic. But this is all happening within the kind of same conceptual universe. And I, my own diagnosis is that this is ultimately a deeply anti-human movement because human beings are this this unique hybrid of the material and spiritual made in the image of god that's what we are and anything that moves us away from that that either treats us just as mere material objects or is this these kinds of 
these minds, these sort of disembodied minds, is ultimately going to be harmful to the human person. But you're not going to normally get that in these New York Times stories. You might get the ambiance of worry from an author, but you're not going to get a really robust critique of the anthropology in a place like the New York Times. All right. And so in terms of that critique, do you think that this is uh, has the potential to become a political issue if, if people uh, try to launch the demand to uh, be able to have a legitimate marriage, a legal marriage with marriage licenses and the rest uh, with uh, characters who don't exist? I, I mean, I don't know why it wouldn't. I mean, the reality is if you're, if you're following the, the gender identity debate, which is really radical, I mean, gender identity and gender ideology, is it's not a substitute for biological sex. It's a replacement with an entirely internal subjective idea. Well, that's entered our political discourse and our institutions, and this is connected. This is cognate to it because, look, if what you are is just this subjective self-identity and you can determine it, right, then there's no reason that this wouldn't count. And so I honestly think we're so off the, the course at this point for, about the nature of marriage and proper human relationships that it's not exactly clear, clear what the limiting principle is going to be. Okay, we will be right back with more with Jay Richards, author of The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. And... Uh, is he alarmed about what's going on with the Twitter verse? Uh, we will be right back with Jay Richards, 1 800 955 1776, our phone number. It's a pleasure to be joined by uh, economist Jay Richards, a prolific author who is a fellow at uh, Heritage Foundation and at Discovery Institute, the author of the recent book, The Human Advantage. Uh, we, we talked about this way back in the old days, before the pandemic even, back in 2018, and we actually have that link to our website. That was part of our Great Minds series. Uh, that's with Jay Richards. And Jay, we're talking about how part of uh, the entire tendency, it seems, and so-called enlightened culture is to suggest that there is no such a thing as uh, a normal standards for mm -hmm. sexual relationships. It's all based upon your mind, your feelings, or the way you were born, or the way you were inclined. And uh, I, right now, there are a lot of people who say, okay, so fine, so people believe that and they follow their own instincts. Why should average Americans who are trying to raise our kids, do our work, pay our taxes, be part of the community, try to help build the country, why should people be concerned if there are a bunch of nutty people who want to get married to fictional characters or to sex robots, or if uh, they are people who say they are no gender at all, they are uh, gender binary, they are gender this, they are gender that, why should uh, Americans at large be concerned about what some people on the fringe want to do? I think it's because that perception is mistaken. It feels at the moment like this might be just 
friend stuff. I can tell you, Michael, I, I, I started talking a couple of years ago about, about the gender stuff, uh, the idea that, you know, boys could be allowed to go in girls' bathrooms. Just a few years ago, that you were considered crazy if you thought that might actually happen or you thought that the American Academy of Pediatrics um, I'd actually say, yeah, giving 16-year-old girls sterilizing hormones and double mastectomies, that might be the proper treatment for uh, gender dysphoria. It wasn't that long ago. That was oh, That's some weird thing that might happen in California. It wouldn't happen in Tallahassee, Florida, until it happens to a mom in Tallahassee, Florida, whose child is socially transitioned. And so that, that's what I would tell people is that if we are, in fact, embodied creatures made male and female or sexually dimorphic species, we're meant to mate and to pair together, and children should be, ideally be raised uh, in a home with their married mother and father. If that's the reality, then anything that destroys that or chips away at it is ultimately going to harm human well-being. So we're not just talking about an eccentric rich guy in Japan. We're talking about the self-perception of your 14-year-old daughter in public school who's told, oh, no, she, she doesn't need to be comfortable with her body because her body really doesn't have any meaning. It's whatever her gender identity is, and maybe she got her gender identity from an influencer on TikTok. This is happening to thousands of kids in the country right now. And so I, I treat it not as a fringe thing, but as an existential threat, ultimately. And when you say it's an existential threat, all you have to do is look at another lengthy, brand-new article. It's actually a report, detailed report, in the New York Times about the mental health crisis among U.S. teens. Mm. Uh, they write American adolescence is undergoing a drastic change. Uh, three decades ago, the gravest public health threats to teenagers in the U.S. came from binge drinking, drunken driving, teen pregnancy, and smoking. These have all since fallen sharply, replaced by a new public health concern, the soaring rates of mental health disorders. And uh, they write here that in 2019, 13% of adolescents reported having a major depressive episode, a 60% increase from 2007. Emergency rooms by uh, uh, visits by children and adolescents in that period also rose sharply for anxiety, mood disorders, and self-harm, particular epidemic in self-cutting. And for people's 10 to 24, suicide rates stable from 2000 to 2007 suddenly leaped nearly 60 percent by 2018, according to Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's connected, uh, unquestionably connected to some of this gender confusion that actually is being sown in the country, don't you think? Oh, it's absolutely connected. I mean, it, it, it doesn't take long if you follow uh, the detransition discussions, if you follow the chats online, what you'll discover is uh, huge numbers of what we'll call comorbidities with kids that are suffering from gender dysphoria. Maybe a 16-year-old girl saying she isn't comfortable with her body, but it turns out she's also involved in self-harm. She's also maybe, maybe she's slightly on the autism spectrum. She suffers severe depression. I know one girl, now 23, she started, she got put on testosterone when she was 16, supposedly for gender dysphoria, but she was actually deeply depressed and alienated. She went to therapists for years because the testosterone was making her much worse, and none of the therapists thought, well, maybe the testosterone is making things worse. These things are absolutely connected, and that's what's sort of terrifying about it because it, there really is there is a – we've just gotten over the pandemic from a, a viral contagion, and I think we're dealing – 
with a social contagion that's transmitted uh, largely over social media, which is very, very engaging and also very good at spreading very bad ideas to highly impressionable young minds. And I'm, I'm glad the New York Times noticed that. I just wish they'd connect a few more of the dots. Well, indeed, they make the point that you can't blame whatever is going on with America's teens today. You can't blame it on the pandemic alone because the negative trends in terms of suicide mm -hmm. and depression and self-harm and uh, deep psychiatric problems, that began uh, skyrocketing long before the pandemic. It's, it's actually Absolutely. something that, that's been going on for 10 years or more. Um, what what are the most important guideposts for actually trying to to improve this situation, or at least protect our children and our uh, children and our communities from from this kind of outcome? I think the, the number one thing is that parents have to wake up to what's going on. I talk to a lot of parents. We all you know sort of know our kids, and we don't necessarily know how terrible it is. People that have teenage daughters, for instance, if you have daughters, have daughters, you don't think of daughters as getting addicted to pornography, but really, really graphic pornography can be addictive to girls, and it does something to the female brain that's different from the male brain. So absolute transparency with technology and absolute transparency with what's happening in your schools, not just the curriculum, but the teacher training programs and the things that uh, are being your kids are being exposed to. If a school is being honest. They will tell you exactly what they're doing. If they are not transparent, that tells you they're doing something, you know, they suspect you won't like. I think that's there just isn't a substitute for parents intervening in this, because in almost every case, this stuff is happening because parents are busy and they just do not realize how toxic and how addictive this stuff is. You've written a great deal about some of the gender messages, uh, and we have to continue the conversation uh, on another occasion about that issue in particular and about government actually paying for and encouraging some messages that are profoundly destructive and misleading. Jay Richards, his information posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. We'll be back with... More alarming news? Well, kinda, yeah. We'll be back. Michael Medved show uh, war weariness has not apparently set in yet uh, to uh, uh, in any serious way handicap Ukrainian efforts to uh, resist the Russian invasion uh, more supplies from the United States from Germany elsewhere and uh, this is uh, a CBS News report on their view, updates on the war, and also the fact that uh, Ukraine accuses Russia of gas blackmail. Listen. Ukraine says Russian forces have captured several villages in the Donbass region, now the center of the invasion, but not the only front. As Ukraine fiercely fights back in the east, 
A new front may be appearing to the country's west. For two days, mysterious explosions in Transnistria, the pro-Kremlin breakaway region of Moldova where Russian troops are based. Moldova, without naming names, says the blasts were aimed at creating pretext for straining the security situation. This as the global security situation grows more fragile, with Russia repeatedly firing missiles directly over Ukraine's nuclear plants. What is this? Are they threatening or are they threatening directing fire? I'm speechless, said Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Accusing Russia of threatening to turn nuclear power into a weapon. Now, energy, nuclear or otherwise, is yet another weapon in this war. Today, Russian energy firm Gazprom says it cut says off the gas to Poland and Bulgaria because they wouldn't pay in rubles. Ukraine says it's the start of, quote, gas blackmail aimed at Europe. And uh, that at a time when, so far at least, the uh, European Union and related nations in NATO have um, maintained a certain amount of solidarity in terms of the economic sanctions. And in fact, uh, it's also a time when uh, at the Pentagon, uh, John Kirby, who's a spokesman for the Defense Department, has actually begun to reflect the idea that Ukraine can win this war, even as it expands. This is John Kirby on Fox News. The focus right now, as you might imagine, is helping them win this war, getting them this stuff as fast and as much as, as we can. And that's happening. I mean, it's happening certainly today, but it, it's been happening now for weeks. The president now just signed out, as you saw, another $800 million uh, that some of that material, some of those howitzers that the president literally just uh, approved a few days ago are already in Ukraine. And now the first class of Ukrainian trainers on those howitzers are back in Ukraine as well to train their teammates on this. So, I mean, this, this, this process is moving very, very expeditiously. Right. The focus is getting it there so that they can use it there. And uh, meanwhile, there are members of the Congress, particularly of the Senate, uh, where Secretary Blinken was testifying yesterday before the Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Angus King, who is uh, officially an independent senator. He's actually a Democrat. That's his background. And he caucuses with the Democratic Party. Without Angus King, there's no Democratic majority. There's no tie-breaking vote for Kamala Harris when she comes back from her bout with COVID. Uh, but Angus King actually made uh, some comments that are important about uh, Putin saying that he has a nuclear policy to escalate to de-escalate, meaning basically to scare away the other side from standing its ground. What does that mean to the United States? Here's what Senator Angus King has to it's say, COVID-15. It's important to, to realize that Russia has a different view of nuclear weapons than we do, or than practically anybody else in the world. They view nuclear weapons as just part of their stockpile of, of weapons to use in a conflict. And they actually have a doctrine, which I'm sure you're familiar with, mm -hmm. called escalate to de-escalate. And the idea is, if we're losing on the battlefield, we'll raise the stakes by using tactical nuclear weapons and dare our opponents to respond in kind. And that will, their theory is, de-escalate the conflict. Mm -hmm. They're losing on the battlefield. Now, they've always said they would only do that if the motherland was in danger. 
but Putin considers Ukraine and certainly Crimea part of the motherland. So this is what makes Putin, I think, the most dangerous single individual in history. He's a dictator. He's amoral. He has this fantasy of rebuilding the Soviet Union and that he's sort of the reincarnation of Frederick the Great and he has nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's Peter the Great, actually, is what he meant. <laughs> Frederick the Great was on the other side. Um, this uh, all is uh, worthy of concern and uh, at the same time maybe worthy of encouragement. Uh, Antony Blinken uh, testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on what he saw during his brief visit to Ukraine and his meetings with President Zelensky. Uh, clip two. As we took the train uh, across the border and rode westward into Ukraine, we saw mile after mile of Ukrainian countryside, uh, territory that just a couple of months ago, the Russian government thought that it could seize in a matter of weeks. Today, firmly Ukraine's. In Kyiv, we saw the signs of a vibrant city coming back to life, people eating outside, sitting on benches, strolling. It was right in front of us. The Ukrainians have won the battle for Kyiv. And for all the suffering that they've endured, for all the carnage that Russia's brutal invasion continues to inflict, Ukraine was and will continue to be a free and independent country. Um, it's impossible not to be moved by what the Ukrainians have achieved. Uh, it's also impossible not to believe that they will keep succeeding because they know why they fight. Um, seeing this, I have to tell you I felt some pride in what the United States has done to support the Ukrainian government and its people and an even firmer conviction that we must not let up. And that is a conviction uh, that is clearly shared by uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who doesn't necessarily believe that the only alternative is nuclear confrontation. He was on Fox News. Are you worried that this might turn into a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia? Is this turning into a proxy war? No, it's, it's not. Uh, this is clearly uh, Ukraine's fight, and uh, Ukraine's uh, neighbors and, and allies and partners are, are stepping up to make sure that they, uh, they have what they need in order to be successful. Now, the Ukrainians are there fighting uh, for their, to protect their sovereignty. And uh, that sovereignty is strongly supported in a very important piece that just appeared in The Atlantic. It's by Ann Applebaum, uh, the headline, Ukraine and, and the Words that Led to Mass Murder. First comes the dehumanization, then comes the killing. In truth, she writes, Putin invaded Ukraine in order to turn it into a colony with a puppet regime himself because he cannot conceive of it ever being anything else. His KGB-influenced imagination does not allow for the possibility of authentic politics, grassroots movements, even public opinion. In Putin's language and in the language of most Russian television commentators, the Ukrainians have no agency. They can't make choices for themselves. They can't elect a government for themselves. They aren't even human. They are Nazis, uh, which is the way that they can justify some of the horrors that they have perpetrated in Ukraine. There's uh, also an ongoing 
tiff about the reasons that uh, I, Ukraine was invaded by Putin with uh, Rand Paul, uh, United States Senator, taking an unusual position. We will get to that. Uh, we also uh, are going to be giving you some updates on new polling and new prognostication involving some of the crucial, 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 crucial uh, upcoming elections, including uh, that incredibly bizarre system they have for electing a new congressman in Alaska. Coming up on the Medved Show. You're a nice guy. Michael Medved. Ballots for Alaska's special primary election, uh, because Don Young, who had been the member of Congress from Alaska since the earth co uh, cooled some years ago, <laughs> Don Young had been uh, been there for 50 years. I mean, he was a remarkable guy and a widely respected, uh, very established congressman. But in any event, he passed away. And so they're now having a special primary election to pick a successor. And they're going to be mailed out today to uh, all the voters in Alaska, 560,000 voters. And the voters will be asked to go down a list of 48 candidates and pick one. Uh, pick one. You don't get to... You don't get to pick uh, uh, more than people, more than one individual candidate in this particular primary election, but in the general election, they're going to do ranked voting. Now, this is all so confusing that, uh, that basically uh, it needs special ballot seminars that they're going to be dealing with. And again, you, you have to look at this system and think, if you need special seminars and explanations for how this goes, and basically here, here's the way it is. Sarah Palin is one of the 48 candidates who's going to be on the ballot. People can vote for her. She makes it past the primary if she's one of the top four. She almost certainly will be. And uh, who the other three will be, I don't know. So why do they go through voting to get four candidates? Because in the general election, including uh, Santa Claus is one of the candidates, he, uh, uh, he has a sign that Santa is holding. And yes, he's on the ballot. His uh, sign reads, Medicare for all, health care is a right. Uh, Santa Claus, one of the 48 candidates running for Alaska's lone U.S. Senate seat following the death of uh, Don Young. Anyway, the uh, once you g make it to the final four, and I suspect Santa Claus, which is a fairly familiar name, has a decent chance of making it into the final four, then the, you basically get to vote among those four candidates who clear the primary, my first choice, my second choice, my third choice, etc., and then that uh, is works out with uh, uh, basically the ranked voting so that uh, obviously 
if you are the first choice, you get four times the credit as somebody who makes you their fourth choice. But it's going to be uh, tough for, um, <laughs> for for the voters in Alaska, 560,000 of them, to make uh, this clear. Uh, this message from Santa, um, wrong, wrong time of year, Santa, but a message from Santa Claus, who's on the ballot. I'm happy to announce that I'm a candidate in the special election for the U.S. House of Representatives for Alaska in 2022. I'm an independent, progressive, democratic socialist. Well, he always knew that. He gives away stuff for free and has somebody else foot the bill. I don't know who pays for it. Uh, with an affinity for Bernie Sanders, he says, and I aim to represent all Alaskans. Well, there's the uh, Santa Claus platform, which would be possible. Uh, the uh, word from Mariupol, which is still kind of, sort of, maintaining at least some embers of resistance after most of the city literally destroyed by the Russians, uh, Mariupol residents forced to work on mass burials for food, the mayor says. A third mass grave has been found near the uh, embattled Ukrainian city of Mariupol, and the mayor says Russian occupiers have forced residents to work on the burials. The trench seen on satellite images stretches more than 200 yards and contains thousands, thousands, of civilian bodies. Uh, the mayor, whose name is Vadim Boychenko, says, we know about these mass graves because these fascists, and I have no other word, involve the uh, local population for burial. They told us you need to work hours to get food or water. People are forced to do so. And meanwhile, while all this is going on, there was a bit of sniping between Rand Paul, senator from Kentucky, and Secretary of State Tony Blinken, who was testifying before the Foreign Relations Committee. And it really had to do with the basis for the war. And it seemed in a weird sense as if uh, Rand Paul was trying to actually claim that the United States and NATO were at least partially to blame for this war in which NATO has had no real role at all. Uh, here's what it sounded like, clip six. Look, these, these are important uh, conversations and arguments. My judgment is different. Uh, if you look at the countries that Russia has attacked uh, over the last years, Georgia, uh, leaving forces in Transnistria and Moldova, and then repeatedly Ukraine, these were countries that were not part of NATO. Uh, it has not attacked NATO countries uh, for probably you a very could, good reason. You could also argue the countries they've attacked were part of Russia. Well, that... Uh, I, or were part of the Soviet Union. Yes, and I, fir I firmly disagree with, uh, with, with that proposition. It is the fundamental right of these countries to decide their own future and their own destiny. And I'm not here's, saying here's, it's not, here's but I'm saying that the countries that have been attacked, Georgia and Ukraine, were part of the Soviet Union. And, that does were, not and they Russia were part the of right the Soviet Union since the 1920s. But that does not... That does not give Russia the right to attack them. On the no contrary, no one's saying it does. They were, but it they were really liberated has to from do. being part of this uh, empire by force. Okay, this uh, this idea that uh, um, if if Ron Rand Paul is not trying to say that uh, the fact that they were once part of the Soviet Union is part of the reason they were attacked, what, what is he trying to say?
And the point to keep in mind here, and it's got to be very difficult for Rand Paul, is his father, uh, Ron Paul, who's still around but deservedly obscure, uh, he has the Ron Paul Institute for Peace, which is heavily funded by uh, Russian sources, always has been. And uh, it's a... Uh, it's a very, very terrible thing for anybody to have to deal right now with uh, any any attack on uh, 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 Russia and by basically trying to justify why they invaded. The invasion, we spoke about it yesterday with an academic who was trying to get into Putin's mind and talked about reasons for war. And the reasons for war basically had to do with Putin saw a door closing. He saw Ukraine moving uh, clearly to the West. But the idea that he was afraid of uh, Ukraine doing something to Russia is, is absurd. What he was afraid of is that his opportunity that he wanted to exercise to try to reestablish the Soviet empire was drifting further and further away and there was an idea of now or never. Um, when we come back, speaking about now or never, there's a, a new interesting group of people who are taking on the homeless issue in a place where it's particularly acute. Uh, and what group of people, what organization? I'm talking about the Sierra Club. Now, the Sierra Club people will know as an environmental organization. They're very much for defending parks and for defending endangered species and for now, right now trying to curb the danger of wildfires, which they say has a direct relationship to uh, an ongoing attempt in California to give people the right to camp wherever they want, to set up homeless encampments. We'll be speaking to a chapter director of the Mother Load chapter of Sierra Club. That includes not only Sacramento, but some of the gold rush country nearby. We'll uh, also be talking about uh, the skyrocketing level of crime. How could an impartial observer, not trying to make political hay out of it one way or another, how do you explain something like that? And why are we so afflicted? And why are Republicans in particular, more than Democrats in this election, which should be good news for Republicans, why are Republicans so inflicted with infighting within the party? Is it about issues or just uh, personalities and clashing ambitions? We'll get to that and to much more in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth. 